Good morning. Please leave your Bibles open to the book of Ephesians. Appreciate our reading this morning, and we pray that God will bless the reading and that he will bless the preaching of his word this morning. When we travel down the interstate, we look for those signs that tell us how far we have yet to go to reach our destination. If we're students, we want to know how many weeks left until summer vacation, or how many courses do we have to complete before we can graduate. If we're a patient in the hospital, our question is, how long will it take me to recover? How long before I can go back to work? How long? How far? How much more? How soon? Are all questions that look forward. We're looking for a destination and what it's going to take to get to that destination. And there are times in our lives when we really need to know that, aren't there? When we really need to know how far we have yet to go. But in the spiritual realm, while we certainly do look to the future, there is also a place for us to look backwards. To look back, to be aware of how far we have already come. To understand where we were when we started the Christian life. I don't know who said this, but I agree with the statement that goes, we cannot appreciate how saved we are until we can appreciate how lost we were. Just what is it that we have been saved from? How much did that salvation cost? It's wonderful to think about heaven. It's wonderful to look to the future. And we are taught to to keep our eyes fixed on things that are above, to look forward to heaven and to wonder what it will be like. But there is also a place for knowing how far we have already journeyed and what we were like when the journey began. One of the truly great passages in Scripture for helping us to look back at where we came from, where we were before we became Christians, is found here in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The church in Ephesus, unlike the ones in Galatia, is not a troubled church. There's no evidence in Ephesians that there was internal conflict of any kind in the church and no indication of false teachers who had come from outside. In Ephesians, Paul's concern is very much different. Paul's concern for the Ephesian Christians is that they will live a life that is worthy of the name Christian. That as they live in a pagan city, as they are constantly tempted to go back to their old immoral way of life, that they remember who they are and that they live a life that is worthy of their calling. And part of Paul's strategy for encouraging the Ephesians to live such a life is to remind them of where they were before they became Christians and how far they have come since. Now, you and I who are Christians are on the same journey that the Ephesians were. We have been blessed with salvation just like they were. And so the exhortation that Paul gives them 
will instruct us and guide us and give us a deeper appreciation of the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. And if we aren't Christians this morning, I think this passage will impress on you just how much you need a Savior, just how much you need the salvation that is in Christ, and how much it costs God to make that salvation possible. And hopefully we will all go away this morning even more deeply amazed at the salvation that we have, at what God has done for us and his love for us. The passage that we're going to look for, look at is an echo of our reading. It's found in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Please read along with me. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The first question that we ask here is, just how lost were we? Look again at verses 1 through 3. I love the first three words of verse 1. And you were. And please notice that those are, all, those are past tense. What Paul describes in verses 1 through 3 is what we see in the rearview mirror if we're Christians. This is a description of what we once were. It is not a description of who or what we are as Christians. It is a picture of what we were before we met Jesus, of what every person is before they meet Jesus. And thanks be to God that having met Jesus in obedient faith, it is not the true picture of who we are now. But there was a time... When we were dead, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Oh yes, our hearts beat and we breathed and we walked and we talked, but in the only way that really matters, Paul is saying that we were spiritually dead. And we were dead because we were living a life of sin. We transgressed God's law, we rebelled against him, we violated his will, we disobeyed him, we missed the mark. 
The wages of sin is death, and sin always pays its wages. Now, Paul's concern here in verses 1 through 3 is not with some specific sin that we might have committed on some specific occasion. He might be that in Galatians 5.16 following, but not here. Paul is saying that we were involved in sin as our way of life, as our lifestyle. Before we became Christians, we disobeyed God. And we lived as if there was no God. And as a result of our sin-filled life, we died spiritually. That's who we were. That's what we were before we became Christians, before we were saved. Our life in sin and trespasses was under the influence of three things. First, Paul says that our life in sin was following the course of this world. We were living and acting just like everybody else. The values that we had, the way we saw things, how we carried ourselves, just like the people in the world, just like people who didn't know God. The world's values were our own. That was the path that we were on. Second, he says, we followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's worked in the sons of disobedience. There is personal evil in the world. The world wants to believe that that's not true, but that's wrong. There is personal evil. We call it the devil. We call it Satan. And Satan tempts us and encourages us to sin. He entices us to sin. He makes sin look desirable. He manipulates our lives so that we will want to sin. And in the process, under those influences, sin became a part of us. So much so that we can say that, that that was just the way we had become. There is a third thing that enslaves us and holds us captive in a life of sin. And Paul says it is our flesh. The world and Satan are on the outside making war on us, but our own flesh betrays us. It is the enemy in the camp. Now, when Paul talks about flesh, he's not talking exclusively about sexuality, although that is one area of life in which the sins of the flesh occur. But by flesh here, as he did in Galatians 5.16, Paul is talking about, what, about life without God. When he talks about flesh, he's talking about our rebelliousness. Our, our desire to shake our fist in the face of God. Our determination that we're going to tell God that we're going to do things our way. Not your way. And that desire, Paul is saying, is the third thing that controlled us. That manipulated and controlled our lives. We were so caught up living for ourselves and not for God that we became the objects of his wrath. God created us with physical needs and desires. But before we became Christians, we were slaves to those desires. And through those desires, Satan led us into sin. And so we were dead in trespasses and sin in which we once lived. 
And a holy, righteous God was angry at our sin. He judged us and he condemned us because of the sin that was in our lives. We were lost. And we were totally incapable of doing anything to change that situation. There was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. And when you look at verses 1 through 3 and you see the image that Paul is painting there of what we were like before we became Christians, I don't know about you, but I don't like that image. I don't like that picture in the rearview mirror. I don't like to think about how lost I was before Jesus came into my life or to think that if I had continued on that pathway that my destination would have been eternity in hell because that is the destination of those who never change this picture who always remain in their sin. But that brings us to a second question. If we were that lost, how are we saved? And Paul answers that in verses 4 through 7. Notice something very important at the beginning of verse 4. Notice that Paul's starting point is not with us. He doesn't start out talking about us, about what we do or what we need to do. He starts out with God. And that's significant. You see, the answer to our question, if we're that lost, then how can we be saved, doesn't begin with what humans do. It begins with what God does. Not to be insensitive or disrespectful to anyone, but Paul says in verse 1 that we were dead. And every one of us knows that dead people don't do anything. And I know that's kind of crass, but that's the reality. Dead people are dead. They can't do anything. And that's true in the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm. But God can do something. God can change the situation that we were in. And he did. And what he did is so good is so very good. Paul says he acted out of his rich mercy. Paul is saying that what God did to save us was an expression of his great mercy, his riches in mercy. For when it comes to mercy, God is wealthy beyond measure, beyond imagination. God's capacity to forgive and to restore is boundless. But not only is God rich in mercy, he has great love. And he acted out of that great love with which he loved us. Look again at the description in verses 1 through 3. In that state, in that spiritual condition, God loved us with great love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God did something for us because he's merciful and because he loves us. Because he loves us. And what he did is make dead people alive. He gave us life in Christ Jesus. He made us alive together with Christ. We were dead in trespasses and sin, but now, but now, but now, we are alive. 
We are alive with Christ. And Paul can't hold himself back anymore. He says, by grace you're saved. Hold on to that thought because he's not done with it. And having been made alive, he raised us up with him. Jesus was raised from the dead. And you and I as Christians have been raised from the dead. And we've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. We have gone from death to life. How do you measure such a distance? How do we get our minds around the distance that we have traveled from death to life? There is a place in the western Pacific Ocean that is 6.8 miles deep. Mount Everest is more than five miles tall. What an incredible distance from the bottom of the trench to the top of the mountain. Well, in the spiritual realm, God has taken us out of the trench and he's brought us up to the mountain. He has taken us from death and he has brought us to life in Christ Jesus. We were lower than lower, but now we are higher than high. And again, it is an incredible journey. It is an incredible contrast when we put these two things side by side. Once we were dead, but now we're alive. Once we followed the course of this world and Satan had his way with us, but now we have risen with Christ and we walk in newness of life. Once we were children of disobedience, controlled by our flesh, children of wrath, but now we share in the glory of Jesus. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. All because of God's grace. All because of his mercy. All because he loves us. He gave his one and only son to die on the cross on our behalf for us. He took our place. The nails in the cross were ours. We deserved them. But he took them and bore them himself. And in dying for us and saving for us, saving us, God has made proof of the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For all of the ages, we who have been made alive, who have been raised with Christ and now sit in heavenly places are the demonstration, the proof of how great God's love is. How immeasurable his grace is. How rich his mercy is. You see, we can answer the question, how merciful is God? How much does God love us? How much does he desire to save us? How kind is he? And the answer that we can give is, I was dead, but I am alive. I was dead in my sins, but now I'm alive. That's how gracious he is. And every one of us that are Christians can say that. Every one of us are living proof of the goodness and grace of God. We were dead, but we are now alive. And the good news is he didn't just do it for us, but he did it for all humanity. But his desire is that everyone, everyone who ever lives 
would have the same opportunity, having been dead in sin, to be alive in Christ. He wants to make you alive. If you're not a Christian this morning, please understand that. God wants to give you life. He wants to raise you up. He wants to extend His grace and His mercy and His kindness to you. He wants to give you a place in His glory with Christ Jesus. But if we're not Christians, how can God's mercy and love and grace and kindness become ours? How can we personally lay hold of all of that? Look at verses 8 through 10. And what Paul says in these verses is this. That salvation just requires two things. It requires giving and it requires receiving. God does the giving and we do the receiving. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, Paul says. God saves us by his unmerited, undeserved favor. His love, His mercy, and His kindness. He hates sin. And He condemns sin. But He loves sinners. And He has taken the first steps to save sinners. He has reached out to us. He has come to us with salvation. One of the things that makes Christianity distinct from all of the religions of the world, is that in Christianity, God comes to human beings with salvation in His hands. In all of the other religions of the world, man is in some kind of search for salvation. Now, which is better? God coming to find us and save us, or us maybe finding something or not finding something? I don't think that's a hard question to answer. We were dead in our sins, but He made us alive in Christ. Through His grace, He forgives our sins. He gives us new life. He gives us the gift of eternal life. And He gives us the gift of His Spirit. So the first part of this, becoming our own, is in giving. But then there's the receiving. And the receiving is what we do. It's not hard at all to read through the Bible and find examples of God being gracious to people. And that grace, wherever we find it, however we find it expressed, is always a gift that is not deserved or merited in any way. But in each and every case, an example of grace that we find in Scripture, we also find that when God extends His grace to someone or offers His grace to someone, He tells them, what they must do in order to receive that grace, in order to make that grace theirs. One of the great grace passages in the Old Testament is found in Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. God says that He brought His people to Himself on eagle's wings. He brought them out of their slavery. He brought them through the Red Sea. He brought them to Sinai. And there at Sinai, he made them an offer. He gave them something. He told them that he would be their God and they would be his people. They didn't deserve that. They didn't deserve to be the people of God. That was his free gift to them. But if they wanted to accept that gift, they had to agree to keep the covenant. 
They had to agree to live in faith and obedience before him. The grace and the gift was free, but in order for it to be theirs, they had to do some things. They had to live in a particular way. They had to keep the covenant. And it's the same thing here. By grace you have been saved. That's God's doing. That's God's gift. And it comes to us through faith. That is what we do. God wants to give us the gift and we have to open our hands to receive it. Well, how do you open your hands to receive God's gift of salvation? Very simply, you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that God raised his Son from the dead. You repent of your sins. You turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. You turn your life from the darkness to the light. You publicly confess your faith in Christ Jesus. You're immersed in water, for in that immersion you're joined to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And out of that water we rise to walk in newness of life. That's how we receive his grace. That's how his grace becomes our own. It is God's grace that saves. It is our faith, our hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being immersed that makes that salvation personally ours. That's what we must do in order to receive it. Now, those five things are not what saves us. But they are the things that God expects us to do if we are going to receive his saving grace. This grace, the salvation that we receive, Paul emphasizes is God's gift. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we accomplish. We're not saved from our trespasses and sin as a result of our work or as a result of our effort. If we could do it, earn it by our works, then we have something to brag about. Look at me. I earned my salvation this week. No. Salvation is a gift, not one that we earn. If I give you a gift, you can look at, at it and show it to others and say, look at what Duane gave me. But if you work for me all week and at the end of the week I give you a paycheck, you can say, I earned this this week. Well, God never lets us be in a position where we say, oh, I earned my salvation this week. It's his doing. It's his work. He saves us. And we do the things that he asks of us in order to receive it. He freely gives us his gift of salvation, but it is not something that we work or earn. But then there comes one final question that is so very important. And that is that when we're made alive with Christ, when we're raised up with him and we're seated with him in heavenly places, what do you do with this saved life? What do you do with this new life that God has given us by his grace in Christ Jesus? Paul concludes in verse 10 by saying that we are God's workmanship. We are his creation in Christ Jesus. He made us anew. He gave us new life. 
And that new life has a purpose. It has a divine purpose. And the purpose is one that God worked out before the foundations of the world. Before the world was even created. Chapter 1 in our reading. And that purpose, Paul says, is that we should walk in good works. We once walked in trespasses and sins, but now we walk in good works, Paul says. We've been saved by God's grace, and now as a result we have a new life, and it's a new life of good works. Now understand, we don't do good works in order to be saved. That would be earning it. But we do good works and we live a life of obedience because we are saved. Do you understand the difference? We don't do the good things that we do as Christians because we're out there trying to earn our salvation. We do those things because we are saved. Because we have been redeemed. Because we have new life. And we need to keep that distinction very clear. We live godly, faithful, serving lives because that's what redeemed people do. That's the life of the redeemed. That's the life of the saved. That's what he saved us for. To enjoy this new life in Christ. To live a life of godliness and service. When we look back at how lost we once were, at how we were dead in our trespasses and sin, we should be filled with horror that we were in such a terrible place. But when we look to the present and we look to the future, we see how saved we are in Christ Jesus. And that should amaze us. That should overwhelm us. That God could love us so much. That He could do so much good for us. He truly is rich toward us in mercy. He truly loves us with great love. And everything that He does demonstrates for all time how much he truly loves us in Christ Jesus. I wanted to preach this lesson this morning for three reasons. First of all, I wanted to preach the gospel this morning. And what you've heard this morning is good news. It is the best news that any human being can possibly hear. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you've not done what God asked you to do, in order to be saved. I hope that you'll carefully consider where you are spiritually. Read verses 1 through 3 again. And then consider the blessings that come from being a Christian, what God does for us, and why He does it in verses 4 through 7. And then consider what you need to do to make salvation your own, verses 8 through 10. But I also wanted to preach this for a second reason. And the second reason was that I hoped that my brothers and sisters in Christ would look back in their own lives and see what God has done for them. See what amazing things God has done for them in saving them. And that you would be encouraged and that you would be strengthened in your faith. And that you would walk out of here this morning in joy and that you would live this week in the joy of your salvation. You know, there's a doctrine that we in Churches of Christ have fought and fought and fought. And our little phrase word for that is once saved, always saved. That's false doctrine. The Bible doesn't teach it. 
But all too often in churches of Christ, we have had our own false doctrine. And the false doctrine can be labeled this way, once saved, barely saved. There are far too many of us that live their Christian lives in abject terror that we will never do enough to be good enough to go to heaven. That our sins are just too much and that God won't be able to forgive. Read this passage again and read it and read it and read it until you understand how saved you are, how much God loves you, and how much God wants to spend eternity in heaven with you. You're not barely saved. You are fully and completely saved. And yes, we will see the final reality of that on Judgment Day when we go through the gates of heaven. But salvation in heaven begin now in this life. And we're called to live faithfully before that. I hope, third, that as Christians we have a renewed sense of what this life is for. We get so caught up in so many things and there are so many demands and, and we can't hardly keep up with our schedule sometimes. Sometimes our schedules run us. Amen? Yeah, they do. And we just need to rise above that and realize that God made us for something more than that. That he made us for a life of godliness. And that he made us for a life of service. If there's someone here this morning that needs to answer God's invitation to receive salvation, we've told you what you need to do. And we now provide you with an opportunity to do it. If you're already a Christian but you've wandered away into sin, your father keeps on loving you and he wants you to come back to him. Just come forward and confess your sin and we will pray with you and God will give you the forgiveness that you need. Won't you come while we stand and sing?